Well, good morning, Eastview. It is, uh, it's good to be together this morning. It's good to see you guys face-to-face. You powered through the snow. So give yourselves a round of applause. Seriously. And if you're watching online, I suspect a few more people might because of the holidays and the weather. I want to say welcome. We're glad you're joining us on the online campus. Guys, Happy New Year. We're in 2022. It doesn't seem possible, but here we are. And here's what I'd like to say officially on behalf of Eastview Christian Church. We will not be making any predictions or any promises about 2022. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's going to be better. I'm not going to tell you it's going to be worse. If we've learned anything, the last two years have taught me, we have no idea what the future holds, right? I don't know if there's going to be a variant for every letter of the alphabet. I don't know if our kids are going to be in person in school or at home. I don't know if we're going to have travel restrictions. If you told me at the end of this year, we're going to have dancing bears with masks giving us our fifth booster shot, I might say, you know what? It's 50-50 chance. I don't know because we have no idea what this year is going to bring. I'm not poking fun at anything. So please don't email later this week. What we do know, what we do know is we have Jesus. And what we do know is no matter what this year brings, next week or in three months or in six months, no matter what we endure, what valleys we walk through, what ambiguity we face today, we know that we've got Jesus, that he's already in our future. Whatever tomorrow brings, he's already at the scene. He's already in control and he's going to bring us through it. And so we celebrate that today. I I love what we're getting ready to do, guys, because as the new year has come, many of us begin to think about New Year's resolutions. What can I do different? What can I do better? How can I try harder? And we're starting a six-week series on failures. We're going to look at the life of Peter and six weeks of epic failures in Peter's life, and we're going to learn that it's okay to fail. In fact, Mike has titled this sermon series, Failing fearlessly, because we want to get used to failing, and we want to get back up, and we want to continue to be committed to following Jesus no matter the cost, no matter how many times we fail. And so we're going to talk about failing fearlessly today. And today, specifically, we're going to look at Peter's life and his failure of expectations. We're going to see that Peter, the disciples, those closest to Jesus, fundamentally misunderstood who he was and what he was about. And it got me thinking this week about Times in history, we've all got expectations, and we've all got assumptions about our spouse, our family, our kids, what 2020 is going to hold. We all have assumptions and expectations. It made me wonder, what are some of the just classic expectations or assumptions that were just comically wrong throughout history? So here's a few to start us off. Samuel Pepys was a celebrated English writer. He wrote the following comment after seeing Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet play, the worst play I ever saw in my life. Charles Duell was the commissioner of the U.S. Patents Office in 1899. He said, everything that can be invented has been invented. There's nothing else to be invented in 1899. Little bit off. General Douglas Haig, he was the commander of the British Army in World War I in 1914. When asked about the machine gun, here's what he said. Make no mistake, this weapon will change absolutely nothing. Not true. H.M. Warner of Warner Brothers asked in 1927, who the bleep wants to hear actors talk? (laughs) I modified what he said for today. And finally, my favorite, Mike Baker, your senior pastor in April of 2000, when he found out I wanted to date this cute girl named Jessica Swallow, went to Jessica and tried to convince her not to date me. (laughs) When we started dating, Mike famously predicted I give this two weeks. And Mike, I know you're watching online, eat it, because 21 years later, (laughs) we're still going. So, expectations and assumptions, they're funny when we get them wrong, but the truth is, you and I have expectations that we lay over God. 
And that's a much more serious idea. And so I want to focus us today on this idea. Okay, looks like, hold on. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. How you respond when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations will be a defining moment in your lives. Let me say that again. How you respond when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations will be a defining moment in your life. So go ahead, grab your Bibles. We're going to get into the Word of God. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark 8, 31 says this. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today. Our hearts are open. You're the teacher. Your Holy Spirit knows each of us what we need to hear. So I pray that you would just move through your text, through this story about who Jesus is. What we need to hear, I pray we would hear it. We love you, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we jump into the text today, we're going to fundamentally look at Jesus on his own terms. In verse 31, we see Jesus talking about who he is, the Son of Man. But before we get into that, I want to back up. There has been an incredible journey. The disciples have been on this incredible journey. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 17, we found Peter and Andrew fishing. And this rabbi that's starting to gain notoriety, he comes up and says, Peter, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he said, yes. He said yes to the journey. And through that journey, he saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus heal the blind. He saw Jesus heal lepers, literally skin change before their very eyes. He saw paralyzed men walk. He saw Jesus calm the storms. He saw Jesus walk on water. And so we see this incredible journey that the disciples have been on leading up to this moment in the text. Right before it, though, there's a defining moment. If you look just a few verses back in Mark 8, verse 29, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, who do you say I am? Jesus and the disciples are walking in this story. And Jesus says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some people say that you're a prophet, the prophet Elijah. Others say you're so-and-so. And Jesus says, no, guys, hold on. You know me. We're doing life together. Who do you say I am? And Peter nails it. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, exactly. Now, if there's spiritual homework, Peter just got an A+. Take that paper home, put it on the fridge. You should be proud of that. He calls Jesus the Messiah, right? It's a defining moment. But it's interesting to me that once the disciples finally understand who Jesus is, he levels up. He introduces a new paradigm. He takes their faith to the next level. He, he kind of shock and awes them. It's as if their entire journey, all the miracles, all the teaching, all the life on life he'd spent with the disciples was up to this point for this moment, and we're at a tipping point. But notice he doesn't use their term. Peter says, you're the Christ, and Jesus says, yes. But in verse 31, look what he says. After they identify him as the Christ, he then began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man. You may not be 
familiar with that term, but did you know that's Jesus's favorite reference for himself? It's used 81 times in the Gospels, the Son of Man. And yet, interestingly, not once do his friends or his enemies use that term. And we see this term, the Son of Man, in the Old Testament. We see it in Ezekiel, we see it in uh, Psalms, and we see it in Daniel. In fact, this passage from Daniel is probably most helpful to understand why Jesus used this term. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we see in this passage, the prophecy in Daniel, this son of man, he comes in heaven. He's in God's presence. All people worship him and God says that's good. And the son of man, he establishes a rule and a reign that will last forever. It's a picture of the Messiah. And so Jesus is using this term as a messianic title. Now, why why son of man? Why not just keep things simple, Jesus, right? Like Peter said, you are the Christ, that word Christos, Greek, The Hebrew word Messiah, it means anointed one. Why not just refer to yourself as the Messiah? Well, if you could understand the disciples' expectations, that word Messiah, it's just dripping with expectations. It's dripping with assumptions. It's a loaded term. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to use that term. I'm going to use the Son of Man. So let's get back into this passage because we're looking at Jesus on his own terms, right? He's teaching his disciples, and here's what he says. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. You notice Jesus's conviction in this passage? He doesn't say to the disciples, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. It's not a secret. Some of the religious leaders don't like me. This could happen. Things could get weird in Jerusalem. People could turn on me. He doesn't say, hey, this might happen. He doesn't even say, guys, this will happen. Jesus says, this must happen. Four things must happen. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must rise three days later. Now, why is Jesus so cranked up? Why is he saying this must happen? That's strong language. Is it because he had a quad shot Americano? He's just amped up a little bit that morning. He's revving a little hot with the disciples. No, it's because of you. It's because of me. It's because of God's plan from the very beginning when sin entered the world, this was the plan for redemption. This must happen so that we can be adopted and brought back into God's family. So Jesus is passionate. First Peter 1, 18 through 20 says this, Peter said, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it wasn't paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. No, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God, listen to this. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So Jesus is passionate. These things must happen because I must redeem my people. And praise God for that. But because the stakes were so high, Jesus speaks plainly. Like we see throughout scripture, Jesus spoke in parables and stories. 
He asked a lot of questions, but when it came to this point in his ministry, he speaks plainly three different times in Mark. In Mark chapter 8, the story we're in today, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, he says plainly, guys, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be killed and I'll rise after three days. He spoke plainly. If we look in Mark chapter 10, I'm going to be delivered over. He gives even more detail. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed and I'll rise after three days. He's very plain in his conversation with disciples. Here's what's coming, guys. Get ready. That's Jesus, the son of man, on his own terms. But now we're going to pivot because there's a big gap between this verse and what Peter senses that Jesus is supposed to be. There's a huge chasm between Jesus on his terms and Jesus on our terms. I don't think it's a coincidence. If you look in Mark, if you look in our chapter in chapter 8, the way that Mark laid out his gospel is really intriguing. Scholars think he intentionally placed certain stories in certain areas as indicators of what's going on. Right before Peter's confession, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, right before that is a miracle story. And it's actually the only recorded miracle that's progressive in the Bible. There's a blind man and Jesus puts his hands on him. Actually, it says he spits in his eyes. I wasn't going to mention that, but it is what it is. He spits in his eyes. He puts his hands on his head and he says, can you see? And the man says, yes, I can see, but it, it, it's blurry. I, I see men walking around, but they look like trees. Then Jesus put his hands back on his head. He said, can you see now? And he said, yes, my vision's clear. And a lot of scholars, guys, think that Mark put this story, this miracle story here because it's a picture of the disciples. Their, their vision's blurry, right? They, they see the Messiah. Peter just named him, Jesus, you are the Christ. But we're going to see in the next verse that even though they saw him as Christ, they didn't see him very clearly. In fact, when we look at their reactions, when Jesus spoke plainly, these three passages in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, in our story today, we see that, that when Jesus spoke plainly about what the Son of Man must do, Peter was angry, frustrated. He rebuked Jesus. He was confused. In Mark 9, he says the same thing. We'll be delivered over, killed, I'll rise in three days. Scripture says the disciples were afraid. They didn't want to say anything. And in Mark chapter 10, uh, the disciples were selfish. They had wrong motives. James and John, as soon as Jesus said, hey, here's what's going to happen in Jerusalem, James and John say, Jesus, can we have seats of authority on your right and left hand? Like, I understand this delivered over flog. We don't really get all that. But what we do get, can we be like your vice presidents? Can we sit at your right and left hand? Can we have power? They just, they didn't see Jesus. They saw the Christ as they wanted to. They didn't see the Son of Man. And we can't blame them. The making of a first century Messiah, they were conditioned by their culture. Uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, all Jews believed their Messiah would be a conqueror, would be a liberator, would be a, a deliverer. Uh, there would be a righteous kingdom, a permanent kingdom established. And so I don't blame Peter for pulling Jesus to the side and rebuking him. Because when we look at Peter's expectations, here's what they saw of their Messiah. Here's what they've been conditioned to expect. Here's what they laid over Jesus. Our Messiah is going to be powerful. Like it's our chance to get our pound of flesh. We're sick of the taxes. We're sick of the census. We're sick of the oppression. We have been under Rome's thumb for too long. And when our Messiah comes, he's going to be powerful. He's going to be prominent. People are going to love the Messiah. He's going to be popular. And why wouldn't he? He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to bring miracles and healing and justice. So he's going to be powerful. 
And he's going to be prominent. And finally, he's going to usher in a kingdom that's permanent, right? A, a, a lasting kingdom, a rule and reign where we're finally on top and our Messiah flips everything upside down. Well, Jesus certainly did that because when you look at what Jesus said and you overlay it with their expectations, we want a powerful Messiah. Jesus says, I'm going to endure suffering. In fact, I must suffer. And the people you thought I was here to liberate you from the Romans, they're going to and they're going to inflict suffering and pain on me. And we look, they, they want a prominent, a popular Messiah. Jesus says, I must be rejected by everyone. Anybody that's a who's who in Jerusalem, they're going to reject me. In fact, several of you are going to deny you even know me. They want a permanent priesthood, a king, a reign, a rule. Jesus says, I'm about to be murdered. Is there anything less permanent than losing somebody unexpectedly in that pain? So it's no surprise that the disciples are absolutely flipped upside down. It's no surprise that Peter would pull Jesus to the side and say, what are you talking about? You've got it all wrong. So let's jump in. Let's look at verse 32. And let's look here. Verse 32 says this, Jesus, he spoke plainly about this, about the suffering, the rejection, the death, the resurrection. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. To rebuke him. That word literally means to chide, to, to scorn like you would a little child. It means to censure somebody like, I significantly, I severely disapprove with what you just said. Matthew 16 gives us a little bit more detail in his historical account. Here's what Peter actually said. He said, never, never shall this happen, Jesus. It's never going to happen. Be careful though. This is less about Peter's mouth. It's more about his mind. I don't think Peter rebukes Jesus because he lacks self-control and just had an anger flare-up moment. I think he rebukes Peter, or Peter rebukes Jesus because he just fundamentally challenged everything Peter thought. Peter had just bet the farm on Jesus as the Messiah, and it's nothing like what he thought. I was talking with a friend uh, this week about this passage, and he said, what happens if Peter gets his way? What happens if Peter gets his way? What if Peter pulled Jesus to the side and rebukes him and Jesus said, okay, maybe you're right. There's no cross. There's no death. There's no atonement for our sin. There's no tomb that's empty. There's no resurrection. Peter fundamentally just canceled Easter. It just wrote it out of history. And we talked a little bit about that. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Um, and we mean well. We just often don't know what we're asking of God or what we're telling God. And so we have to be really careful. Well, 20th century theologian A.W. Tozer said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This idea that in the quiet times, when God doesn't meet my expectations, when I fail, when people let me down, when I think about God, what comes into my mind? Those are the beliefs that drive our behavior. Those were the beliefs that drove Peter to say, Jesus, get over here. Get away from the disciples. I don't want to embarrass you, Messiah, by telling you what to do in front of everybody, but this is really messed up. This isn't how it's going to go down. Peter's beliefs drove him to that. But I think just like Peter, we find ourselves rebuking Jesus because he doesn't meet our expectations. 
Just like the disciples, I think our culture, if we're not careful, we create expectations that we lay on Jesus that he never promised to keep. And it impacts our relationship with him. Let me show you the first expectation that I believe our culture has created over Jesus. It's following Jesus means he'll take away my suffering. Following Jesus means he takes away my suffering. And like Peter, we believe the Messiah has come to take my suffering away. And Jesus is saying, Peter, I didn't come to take your suffering away. I came to take your sin away. And I'm going to take your sin away through my suffering. And I don't cause the pain in your life, but Peter, I promise I'll use it and I'll refine you and I'll give you purpose and I'll give you hope in the midst of that pain and I'll give you hope for a preferred future. Peter, you're gonna have to trust me though. In the middle of a storm, Mike talked about this several weeks ago, I can give you peace in the midst of the storm. If you're here today and you're going through a hard season, I wanna encourage you from the word of God Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you're in a hard season right now, 2021 was a doozy. So was 2020. No idea about 2022. But if you're in a valley, Jesus is near. He's near the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus said this himself in John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things so that you may have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble but take heart. I've overcome the world. And so whatever you find yourself in today, God is near. God has already overcome and conquered it. Now that's not to diminish the hard. It's just to say whatever valley we're walking through today, Jesus has already conquered it and he'll bring us through the other side. And Paul reminds us of this in Romans 8, 28. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So as we walk through valleys with Jesus, we know he's near. We know that eventually he's overcome and conquered it. And we know that in ways we don't even understand, we can't even put our minds around, God is working to bring good out of the hard in our life. But man, we have that cultural expectation that following Jesus means he takes away all my suffering. And my fear is that many have fallen away from Jesus when that expectation wasn't met. You know, I, I wanna encourage us with this. God is taking the long view. God, when he looks at each of us, he's taking the long view. And here's what I mean. He loves us deeply. And when we hurt, his heart hurts too. But that doesn't mean he isn't willing to keep the long play in mind. Listen, he's more concerned about who you'll be when you stand before him face to face than whether the journey to get there was always comfortable. God is more concerned about who you'll be your character, your spiritual formation, who you'll be when you stand before him face to face than whether the journey to get there was always comfortable. And I promise you on that day, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth getting behind Jesus. It'll be worth following. We won't be disappointed. Well, the second expectation that our culture shapes in us as 20th century followers of Jesus is following Jesus is about my self-fulfillment, not my sacrifice. That following Jesus is more about my self-fulfillment not my sacrifice. Peter believed that Jesus was going to make his life better, right? Like he didn't have all the answers. When Jesus said, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter had no idea the journey he was going to go on, but he certainly assumed once he figured out Jesus was the Messiah, things were going to go up and to the right. Like Peter thought his life was going to be better. And Jesus talks about suffering and death. And we're not even getting into verse 34 where he talks later to the crowd. He says, hey, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross 
deny yourself and get over it. Well, that doesn't sound like a better life. To Peter, that sounds like forfeiting your life, not making it better. I think about Copernicus in the 15th century where he fundamentally reshaped the worldview. The current worldview in the 15th century was that the earth was the center of the universe, right? And then he, he, he kind of had a theory that the sun was actually the center of the universe, and it fundamentally reshaped a lot of things, got him in a little bit of trouble. But we have to have that type of moment in our following of Jesus where we, the earth, are not the center of the universe, and we put the Son of Man in the center, and everything we do and everything we are and everything we have revolves around him. It's kind of like James and John requested earlier. Can we sit at the right and left hand? That's earth-centered thinking. Get the son of, the man, son of man in the center of the universe. Have we offered our lives entirely up to him without restriction? We all have expectations of God, just like the disciples in the first century. We may not even realize we have them until they get poked by something subconsciously, by a, a situation in our life that, that pokes something and brings something out of us. I want to challenge us this week to think about that. What are your expectations of the Messiah What are your expectations of the Son of Man? Do you accept Jesus on his terms or on your terms? Now, we have better perspective. We see the full story of the Gospels, right? The disciples didn't have that privilege. But I bet there are some things that we lay over Jesus in the 21st century that he never promised or committed to. And maybe the easiest way to begin to reflect on those are those times you've been angry at God, those times you've been scared and questioned if he was there the times you've been frustrated, the times we've had wrong motives. Just like the disciples, we lay those things over Jesus. But we don't have to. William Temple was an Anglican uh, priest, pastor in the 19th century in England. He served as the Bishop of Manchester of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he he had this quote that stuck out to me this week. It was profound. He said, if people live with the wrong view of God, The more religious they become, the worse the consequences will get, and eventually it'd be better for them to be atheists. If people live with the wrong view of God, the more religious they become, the worse the consequences will get, and eventually it would be better for them to be atheists. Now, what what is William Temple saying there? Well, what he's saying is when we have a flawed view of God, remember, beliefs drive behaviors. The reason Peter rebuked Jesus is because he fundamentally disagreed with what Jesus just said. And so our expectations, our beliefs about God, they shape us more than you realize. And we have to make sure we've got a right picture of God moving into 2022. Well, so we see the clash here, right? Jesus on his terms, the son of man. Peter on his terms saying, uh, no, Jesus, I'm gonna rebuke you. That's not where we're going. In verse 33, we see how Jesus addresses this intersection, right? Uh, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, He rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I don't know if anybody's ever been publicly rebuked here. It's pretty embarrassing, actually. I remember I was at Donna's house. I was about seven. We had cornered Ketty. She was a little girl that Donna watched. Donna's a friend of ours for 40 years. She babysat me. She babysat my kids. She's a great woman, despite what I'm about to share. (laughs) And we had cornered Ketty. And I had a Nerf gun in my hand, and it may or may not have been pointed at Ketty's face. And Brian is in my ear saying, shoot her. And I thought it was a good idea, locked, loaded. So I point the gun at Ketty's face, 
I pulled the trigger. The bullet whizzes out of the gun straight at Ketty's eye, which was open, drilling her in the face. Ketty lets out a blood-curdling scream. Immediately, my sphincter tightens up, and I reevaluate the decision I just made. Ketty runs to Donna. Donna comes downstairs. And Donna gets down and says, anyone that's stupid enough to shoot Ketty in the face, go upstairs. <laughs> I'm over it, Donna. Thanks. But anyway... And I began this walk of shame up the stairs while everybody watched me. Can you imagine Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He's riding high. He had just identified Jesus as the Christ. And in the next minute, he says, get behind me, Satan. I bet Peter was pretty quiet at dinner that night, doing a little bit of soul searching. Can you imagine the other disciples, how thankful they were that they didn't? pull Jesus aside. Like, what if there was another disciple that was about to do that? And then Peter quick stepped in. You're like, man, did I dodge that bullet? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus recognized that this was spiritual warfare. In Luke chapter four, when Jesus is baptized, he goes out to the desert for 40 days to fast, to pray, to connect with God, to prepare for his public ministry. And it says that Satan came and he met him there. And Satan tried to tempt Jesus in every way possible to get Jesus off mission. And what's really interesting, it's a verse that should make the hair stand up on the back of our necks. Luke 4.13 says, when, when Satan was done tempting him, he left Jesus for another opportune time. Satan said, I'll, I'll be back. And this was one of those moments where Satan is working through Peter to try to bump Jesus, the son of man, off his mission. To get Jesus to think in terms of power and prominence and permanency. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, it's interesting, Satan tries to use Peter, one of the disciples, to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And then later, Satan uses Judas, one of the other disciples, to get Jesus to go to the cross. I think that's why Peter writes later in his life in 1 Peter 5.8, be alert, like be alert, church, and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. And so we see in this moment, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because he recognizes it for what it is, spiritual warfare. But he's also saying, hey, Peter, dude, get behind me. Like the place of of a disciple is not in front of the rabbi. The place of a disciple is not rebuking a rabbi. And I think to truly get behind Jesus, we have to answer three questions. Number one, have I taken authority that's not mine to take? Have I taken authority that's not mine to take? Peter pulls Jesus to the side and begins to rebuke him. That's not his place. He needs to submit and get behind Jesus. So as I follow, as I get behind Jesus in 2022, are there areas of my life that I've taken authority that's not mine to take? It belongs to the Son of Man. It belongs to Jesus. I need to give it to him and get behind. Question number two is, does my obedience have limits? Peter was all about the healing and the miracles and the potential notoriety I'm all about salvation and the cross and knowing my sins are forgiven, that God loves us, that he knit us together in his image, that he has a plan and purpose. But does our obedience have limits? Are there things that are off limits for God that we say, no, I'm not going to get behind you, Jesus. This is mine. Question three, when Jesus speaks plainly, do I reinterpret what he says? Most of what Jesus says in scripture is pretty straightforward. When Jesus told them what the Son of Man had to do plainly, it was pretty straightforward. Guys, I'm going to suffer and be rejected. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Pretty straightforward, pretty plain. And he tells them three times. 
But because of their expectations of Jesus, they couldn't hear it. And so my question today is, are there times in my life where Jesus is speaking plainly, like a sixth grader could understand it, but I want to make it more complicated because I don't like it. Sometimes simple is hard, right? How about love your enemies? I don't need to reinterpret that. How about don't worry about tomorrow? No one comes to the Father except through me. You, You can't love both God and money. There are so many things in my life that are simple, that Jesus is asking me to get behind him and follow, and I'm out in front trying to reinterpret it based on my preferences and our culture. Guys, as we close today, I want to go back to verse 33. Jesus says, hey, Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You're not thinking about the kingdom the way I am. You're thinking about this earth. And I just, I want to Take a chance if there's somebody here in person, and maybe there's somebody watching online that, that hasn't fundamentally had that Mark 8, 29 moment where Jesus looks at you and says, who do you say I am? And we have to answer that. And if there's anybody here today or anybody watching online that says, I, I'm just curious about who Jesus is. I don't know him. I wouldn't label him Christ or Messiah. I just want to encourage you. Maybe that's why you're watching, or maybe that's why you're here today. The one question you've got to wrestle with is what Jesus says in Mark 8, 29. Who do you say I am? I promise it's the most important question any of us have answered or will answer. For those here that are following Jesus, like Peter, that say you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, I just want to encourage us to hang in there. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, hang in there. When you don't understand why or what God is doing in your life, hang in there. When you fail like Peter over and over and over again, hang in there. Because Peter went from the guy we read about in the Gospel of Mark, making mistakes, wrong expectations, getting in Jesus's way. We see a leader in the early church in Acts who's emboldened and he's growing in his faith and his understanding and his knowledge of God. And then at the end of his life in First and Second Peter, We see a man who knows God. He speaks 16 times in 2 Peter about the knowledge of God, not book knowledge, relationship, experiential knowledge. Peter knew Christ. And what he found was Jesus, the son of man on his terms, was infinitely more valuable than anything Peter had concocted in his mind. May we get behind Jesus together in 2022 and fearlessly follow him together. Amen.